In Revelation chapter 7, we are given a glimpse into glory. The Bible shows us very clearly here those who are in heaven. It tells us how they got there. It speaks to us of what they're doing there. And we understand from all that is written what the prospects are for us also who by God's grace will go there. We talked about the fact that John the Beloved was privileged to see a number of different visions while he was exiled on the Isle of Patmos. In chapter 4, verse 1, heaven was opened to him, and the Bible says that he saw in the Spirit certain things. He saw the throne of God. In chapter 5, then, he saw the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus, and those who were worshipping him. While here in chapter 7, he had a vision of the redeemed people of God in glory. Some will ask the question betimes, I wonder what heaven is like. Because in many respects, it is hidden from us. Eye hath not seen, ear hath not heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man the things that God hath prepared for them that love him. Though the Bible does go on to say, he has revealed them unto us by his Spirit. So we do know something of glory. As I said, we know from what is written in Revelation, certain information about those who will be in heaven. Who they are that will be there. They're identified in chapter 7 and verse 14. They're they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They're a blood-washed throng. We find out that that's the only reason why they're there. They're not there because they joined a church. They're not there because they underwent some ceremony in the church. They're not there because they were good people. They're not there because they did good things. They're there, according to verse 15, because of what is written in verse 14. The connection there is the word therefore. Therefore. Here's the reason why they are before the throne of God. Why are they in heaven? Well, look at verse 14 again. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's the only reason any of us will ever be in heaven. Jesus died for us. He suffered the wrath of God on our behalf. And therefore we rejoice in Christ alone. If you want to be in heaven, when you pass into eternity, you need to be one of those that's referred to here. One of those who has washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. We have talked about those who are in heaven. We've talked about how they got to be there. But we also need to think about what they're doing there. I suppose people, if you ask them, would have all manner of different theories as to what people who are in heaven are doing right now. I'm sure some of the answers to that question would be amusing in the extreme. Some of them would just be flat out wrong. But we're given in this chapter, and again in Revelation chapter 22, a very clear indication as to the activities of those who are in heaven. What are they doing there? Well, it's simple. Verse 15 says, They're before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. They serve him day and night in his temple, in his holy place. Now go to Revelation chapter 22, from which we read earlier. And it tells us in verse 3, concerning this wonderful place, that there shall be no more curse. The reason for that is that there's no sin. It's sin that's brought the curse. But there is no more curse. Christ has been made a curse for us on the cross. So in heaven, there's no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And notice this. And his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face. His servants shall serve him. There are two things, really, that are brought before us that I want to deal with in Revelation chapter 7 and verse number 15. There are other things that we will come to 
in the following verses. But today, I just want to deal with these two things. The service and the shelter of heaven. That's the title of this message. We are told here, very clearly, in verse 15 of Revelation 7, that those who are in heaven, those that are washed in the blood of the Lamb, who are before the throne of God, are serving Him day and night in His temple. The service of heaven, that's the first thing we want to talk about. It might surprise some people that in heaven there is work being done. See, some people have the idea that work is a curse. And the reason that they come to that conclusion is that when Adam and Eve sinned against the Lord, the Lord told them as part of the sentence upon their sin that by the sweat of their brow they would earn their bread. And many have concluded from that that therefore the fact that you have to work is a curse. But actually that's not true. Because if you go back earlier, prior to the fall, you'll see that Adam and Eve were workers. You may not have noticed this, but you should have if you've ever read the book of Genesis, that when the Lord created our first parents, he put them into the Garden of Eden. And the scripture tells us what they were there to do. Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden. Look at this. To dress it and to keep it. He was put into the garden to look after the garden. Adam was a horticulturalist. He was a gardener. That's what God tells us in his word. This is before the fall. This is before he ever sinned. He's placed in the Garden of Eden to dress the garden and to keep it. So Adam was a worker. Work is not a bad thing. There are some people who do seem to imagine in this life that the word work is a dirty word. A fellow said to me one time, I love work. I could watch it all day. In fact, he said, I love it so much I could lie down beside it. Work. A lot of people just don't like that word. And I think I could say an awful lot about that since the time that COVID happened and people started getting all these uh, freebies and uh, started being able to do stuff without working. It's become a real problem in the psyche of a lot of people. They don't want to work. They just want to grab whatever they can get from whoever they can get it from, i.e. the government. But you see, there is no such thing as the government giving you money. It's everybody else. The money doesn't come from the sky. It doesn't just magically appear. It's raised by what's called taxation. And taxation is what people who work suffer from to pay for everybody else. That's what happens. Work is not a dirty word. Work is something that's good. And when we look at heaven, we see that in heaven there's perfect employment. In fact, there's full employment. There's no communism, but there's full employment in heaven. Everybody who's there is serving the Lord. Now, some will look at Revelation 14 verse 13 and say, well, isn't that a contradiction? Well, let's look at that verse. Revelation 14, verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Right, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth, yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. So there it is, they say, they rest from their labors. Heaven is all about rest. Well, we have to understand the labors that are being referred to here. These are their earthly labors. This is the work that they did on the earth for the Lord. That's now ceased. Their work is done because they've gone to heaven, but they haven't stopped working. Now, it does say then in Hebrews chapter 4, something similar to what you read there in Revelation 14. In Hebrews chapter 4, 
and verse 3. The Bible says, For we which have believed do enter into rest. (coughs) So we have this idea again of rest. To some people that is inactivity. Again, you read in Hebrews 4 verses 9 and 10 about how that there remaineth a rest, the keeping of a Sabbath for the people of God. For he that has entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works as God did from his. So they'll say, there you are. All the work is over. Now that they're in heaven, it's a place of rest. And yes, heaven is an eternal Sabbath rest. It is a place where everything's completely devoted to God. But when it talks about labor and work being done, it's referring to their earthly work. The responsibilities that they had here below. And now they're receiving the eternal good that has been purchased through the finished work of Christ. The rest of heaven is, yes, a reality. But the Bible teaches that in heaven, that rest involves serving God day and night in his temple. When the Bible talks about they rest from their labors and speaks of the rest of the believers who have gone to glory, we must think about all the labors and the struggles and the difficulties and the trials and the tribulations that are involved with living in a sinful world. They're all gone. That's why the hymn says, When all my labors and trials are o'er, and I am safe on that beautiful shore. Rest from all the labors and the struggles with sin here. But far from being a place of holy inactivity, as one described it, in heaven we're going to have plenty to do. Now, I don't know what that means exactly. We're not told what it means, really, as far as filling in all the blanks. His servants shall serve him. But it's enough for us to know that we will be serving the Lord and will be taking delight in serving him continuously. Free from all of the trammels of this life, the weakness and and the, the, the weariness that characterizes our work here on the earth. Our work in heaven, in short, will be our worship. The servants of God, they shall serve him. Surely there can be no higher activity, no more blessed activity than engage in worship. Ascribing worth to our God. And as we think about the service of heaven, we must think about the duty of such service. Do you know that work physical work even on this earth is as much an ordinance as marriage or the Sabbath. You know what the commandment says, don't you? The Sabbath commandment. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. Six days. Most people are pushing these days, and even in European countries especially, for a four-day working week. But the Lord said, six days shalt thou labor. If work was part of God's plan from the beginning, and it was according to the commandment, then we shouldn't be surprised to find that in heaven, where paradise is restored, where it is the perfect representation of the Garden of Eden, the paradise of God with the tree of life, it should be of no surprise that there's work there. And there's a duty of work here below. But you read the New Testament exhortations that Paul gave about working. I often think it would be good to have those above some of these government offices where they give out free stuff. If any work not, neither should he eat. That's the Bible says. That's what the Bible says. If any does not take care of his own, then Paul said, let him be as an infidel. Strong words. We are to do what we do for the glory of God. Therefore, as a Christian, you make no distinction between the sacred and the secular. Everything that you do is to be for the glory of God. Martin Luther said that 
A Christian shoemaker had no less a calling than a Christian preacher. The difference being only one of role and function. And so when we read Paul's words to the Colossians in the closing words of chapter 3, you see that he's talking there clearly about work and doing it not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing the Lord. He said, whatever you do, you're to do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. Work. It's part of the Lord's plan. And if it's part of the normal life of a believer here below, it's also going to be, if I could put it this way, a normal part of eternal life. As I said many times before, when we get to heaven, we're not going to be lying about on clouds with somebody dropping grapes into our mouths. That's a myth. We're going to be serving him. And we're going to view that as the most wonderful privilege. Someone once said, we are saved to serve. And of course, he's referring there to the work of the gospel. But the Bible is very clear about the duty of work. In Ephesians chapter number 4, the apostle Paul was very clear about this when he said concerning those in that church, let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. That's Ephesians 4.28. The duty of work. It's something that we're meant to do. But as we think of the duty of work, we think about heaven and realize that the work that is there is going to be so much more than any work we've done here on the earth as far as the joy and the delight of it. We'll come to that in a moment. But we think about the duty of work, and even in this life we talk about and think about the difficulty of work. <clears throat> you don't always get the job you want to have, do you, here on the earth? And sometimes... You have to say to young people, look, <clears throat> get a job. It may not be the job that you really want. It may not be the perfect job, but it gets you onto the ladder. It gets your foot onto the ladder. And then when you've got a job, it's much easier to get another job. Do you ever find that? When you don't have work, those that you go to talk to that you're being interviewed by are wondering, why is it that you don't have a job? And then they won't employ you sometimes. My mother used to say, don't throw out your dirty water till you get some clean stuff. It's a really good saying. At least it's better than no water. It may be a bit dark and dirty, but it's better than having no water. If you have a job, you may not really like that job too well, but it may be a stepping stone to a better job. It's part of God's plan. And the difficulty of work is something that we've all experienced in life. I remember as a young person being in a particular job, and I hated it every day I went to work. I was ready to bite nails in two. I hated that job. But you know what? It wasn't too long before the Lord got me a better job. We are to work. And we live in a fallen world, and therefore sin and its consequences infect every aspect of life. And one of those could be your workplace. You may not like the people you work with. That can be a problem. You may not like your boss. They may not like you. There are difficulties in this life with work. Some people find no fulfillment whatsoever in the job that they're doing. I often think about men who used to go down coal mines and <clears throat> When they went down there in the morning, it was dark. And when they came back up after their shift in the evening, it was dark. And when they were down underground, it was dark. And they had hard work to do. A lot of them got lung diseases. A lot of them just didn't do very well in those damp and dark, dreary conditions. But it was work. The difficulty of work. People working on an endless production line. People sometimes feel like they're chained to a desk in an office and looking at a computer screen all day long. Difficulties in work. But oh, when we get to heaven, the work that is done there 
will have no difficulty. We'll not be saying, oh, I wish I could get out of this. I can't wait for such and such an hour to arrive because in heaven there are no hours. It's eternity. And heaven is a place of work, yes, but there's delight in that work. What could be more delightful, what could be more fulfilling than serving the Lord in perfection, free of all the trammels of sin, not having to be held back by your own flesh, but serving Him as you ought to serve Him. The Bible says of heaven that it's far better, and that's good enough. We don't need to know anything else about heaven other than the fact that it's far better, and therefore the work that's done there is far better. There's delight in it. Do we delight in the Lord's work here below? Do we delight in serving Him here below? Well, when we're in heaven, we will delight wholly, perfectly, completely in the things of God. Heaven is a place of great joy. Psalm 16 tells us this. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Some people would never associate work with pleasure. There are occasionally people who do a job that is very pleasurable and they love that job. But in heaven, it's a land of pure delight. Perfect employment and perfect enjoyment. They serve him day and night in his temple. Never will they get tired. Never will they get weary. Never will they sit down and moan and complain about this work that they're having to do. No, it is a delight to serve the Lord. May we here on earth delight in his command and love to be led by his dear hand. Yes, as we speak of heaven, we may speak of the service of heaven. What will it be to serve him in perfection? To do his bidding, just like the angels do. When you say the Lord's Prayer, what does it say there? Thy will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. In heaven, God's will is perfectly done. God's work is perfectly done, whatever that is. But as well as the great thought of the work that we do in heaven, the service of heaven... We must concentrate upon what it says in Revelation 7 about the shelter of heaven. I love this. Therefore are they before the throne of God, verse 15 says, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. One translation of this is that he will shelter them under his tabernacle. Another is that He that dwelleth or sitteth on the throne shall shelter them with his glory. But the thought is the same. The shelter of heaven. In this life we face dangers seen and unseen. The devil is on our track. We know the devil is not all-powerful. He's not omnipotent. He's not omniscient. But he's the second most powerful being in the universe. Never forget that. I have to laugh at these people who talk about they're going to rebuke the devil. Some of these preachers, they're going to rebuke the devil. They're peons. They're no match for the devil. And there's one in scripture who realized that and he said, The Lord rebuked thee, O Satan. Because he knew that he couldn't do it. The devil's too strong for us. And once in a while the Lord allows us to find that out. We're no match for the evil one. And God's people are not immune from dangers and harms. They'll go through all kinds of trials. Physical. Even psychological troubles. And spiritual troubles. Sometimes doubting their salvation. Sometimes being almost in a depression over where they're at spiritually. 
because the devil is oppressing them. And we know that evil is a part of living in this fallen world. That's why Jesus taught us to pray in that same Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You could say, deliver us from the evil one. That's the thought. Evil. The Bible teaches us that we're surrounded by it. That evil appeared first on this earth in the Garden of Eden. In the person of the serpent. That old serpent. Who is the devil and Satan according to Revelation 20 verse 2. And we need the Lord's protection from him. Someone said, when the devil comes knocking at your door, send Jesus to the door to answer him. We think about the devil's work and how he gives us trouble in this life. But yet, as we look at the Bible, we see that God is revealed to us as the great protector of his people. One of our hymns puts it like that. A sovereign protector have I. He is our only dependable source of security. And you read the book of Psalms and notice how many times the psalmist is praying about the dangers that he's encountering. Sometimes he was being pursued by King Saul and his armies. He talks a lot in the Psalms, if you read them, about his enemies. And he prays to the Lord about that. For example, in Psalm 59... We read in the first two verses, Deliver me from mine enemies, O my God. Defend me from them that rise up against me. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity. And save me from bloody men. That's here on the earth. And we all have those times when we need to pray the Lord will deliver us from our enemies. Our security is in the Lord. Notice the beautiful statement that David made in Psalm 57, verse 1. Be merciful unto me, O God, be merciful unto me, for my soul trusteth in thee. Look at this. Yea, in the shadow of thy wings will I make my refuge until these calamities be overpassed. Have you ever seen the mother hen? And when the little chicks feel like they're in danger, they run in under her wings and she covers them. She protects them. She looks after them. She won't let any, anything harm them. That's our God. In the shadow of thy wings will I make my refuge. There's a verse in the book of Ruth that speaks of that. About the God of Israel under, under whose wings thou art come to trust. He is like that mother bird. There's shelter. There's protection in the Lord. And we see an example of God's great protection of his people in Exodus 14. The children of Israel were being pursued by Pharaoh and his armies. Humanly speaking, they had no chance. The armies of Pharaoh were too strong. How could they have any chance against Pharaoh's chariots and his armies that were so numerous? The people of Israel, generally speaking, were untrained for warfare. But what did the Lord do? You read Exodus chapter 14 and see how God provided a wall of protection and shelter for his people. In fact, the translation of what is there in Exodus 14, it can, it can bear this particular translation that the Lord sheltered them with his presence. Exodus 14 Verses 19 and 20. And the angel of God which went before the camp of Israel removed and went behind them. And the pillar of the cloud went from before their face and stood behind them. And it came between the camp of the Egyptians and the camp of Israel. It was a cloud and darkness to them, but it gave light by night to these. So that the one came not near the other all the night. There was this great protection this great shelter that the Lord gave to his people. What was that shelter? It was his Shekinah. 
His glory. And when we read about God's protection in the Bible, we think of portions like Psalm 91. What a beautiful passage this is. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. There's his shelter, his protection. He goes on to say, I'll say of the Lord, he's my refuge and my fortress, my God, in him will I trust. Surely he shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noisome pestilence. Look at this. There's this wonderful analogy used again. He shall cover thee with his feathers and under his wings shalt thou trust. There's the mother bird again, sheltering and protecting her young. So therefore thou shalt not be afraid for the terror by night, nor for the arrow that flieth by day, nor for the pestilence that walketh in darkness, nor for the destruction that wasteth at noonday. A thousand shall fall at thy side, ten thousand at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. There's the shelter. Only with thine eyes shalt thou behold and see the reward of the wicked, because thou hast made the Lord which is my refuge even the Most High, thy habitation. There's God's shelter of his people. The Lord's our rock, in him we hide. A shelter in the time of storm. Whenever you think about the Lord's protection of his people, you think about the fact that sometimes it appears that that protection is not given. Many have reflected on Acts chapter 12 and have looked at this wicked man, Herod, and he decides to kill James, the brother of John, with the sword. And he gets away with it. The Lord allows him to kill James. James becomes a martyr for the faith. Why would the Lord allow that man of God to be cut off in the midst of his days? Surely he had a lot more to offer. Surely he had much more to do in ministry for the Lord. But the Lord said, no, it's my time. Even through the wicked, I'll allow him to be taken to heaven. So the security that we have is not an absolute isolation from evil and danger and harm. But what it is, really, is a security of faith and a faithful God that remains constant whatever the trials are externally that we face. The Lord prayed once in John 17, I don't pray that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from the evil, from the evil one, it means. Only in heaven will we have absolute shelter and security. The Lord will shelter us with his presence. Meantime, in this life, yes, he will shelter us. If that is his purpose to keep us alive, if not, he'll take us straight to glory. But we do enjoy the Lord's shelter in this life. And of course, when we think about the shelter of God eternally, it tells us there in Revelation chapter 7 that the one who sits upon the throne shall dwell among them. It can be translated, and I was checking this earlier in my study. There's a whole range of different translations that people have given to this. And there are a number of translations that put here, he who sits upon the throne will shelter them with his presence. As I said earlier, at least one talks about placing his tabernacle over them. And I like that translation. One writer by the name of Charles translates the last part of Revelation 7 and verse 15 like this. He that sitteth upon the throne shall cause his Shekinah to abide upon them. That's a wonderful thought. What is the Shekinah? Shekinah, the glory of God, comes from a Hebrew word, shakan, which means to dwell. The shekinah was the glory of God or the manifestation of God's presence among men, especially in two places. One was in the tabernacle of old and the other in the temple, which was based upon 
the, the tabernacle. The Shekinah was the manifestation of God's presence. And he dwelt in that pillar of cloud and fire. That pillar that went with them all through their journeys. During the day when they looked at it, it was a pillar of cloud. At night time, it became a pillar of fire. And in that cloud was the glory of God. Now in the tabernacle, the Lord dwelt in the Holy of Holies in his Shekinah. Now what's this got to do with heaven? Well, heaven can be defined as being in the immediate presence of God. See, you and I today are in the presence of God. You can't get out of the presence of God. Jonah thought he would run away from the presence of the Lord. But if you read Psalm 139, you'll discover that you can't get away from God's presence. God is everywhere. So we are in his presence. When we pray, we, we, we say, well, we're coming into the Lord's presence in communion. But in heaven, they're in his immediate presence. They enjoy something that you can't really enjoy here on the earth because of the hindrances of your flesh. Unhindered fellowship. Now, when we read in Revelation 21 verse 3, it makes it clear that God's dwelling is among his people. Revelation 21 verse 3 I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, look at this, the tabernacle of God is with men. That's significant. The tabernacle of God, the tent. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. The outstanding reality here on the earth is that God takes up residence with his people, he is our God. But the blessed reality of heaven is that people take up their residence with God. See, he has come to reside with us here. When we die or when we're taken, when Jesus comes to be with him, we go to dwell in his presence. And that's the blessed heavenly reality. And yet in a sense... The experience of believers in heaven is no different from that of believers on the earth, except in its intensity and its extent. That hymn, a debtor to mercy alone, of covenant mercy I sing, nor fear with thy righteousness on my person and offerings to bring. It speaks in one part about those that are in heaven, more happy, but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. Yes, they're more happy. They're in perfect happiness, but they're not more secure. If you're saved this morning, you're every bit as secure as any believer who's in heaven. You already have a home in heaven. The Bible doesn't say he that believeth can have or shall have everlasting life. It says hath everlasting life. He that believeth hath everlasting life. John 5 verse 24. You already have it. You're not waiting till you die to enter into everlasting life. When you come to Christ, you're converted. You receive everlasting life. Life that never ends. So that the person here on earth who's a believer, when they die, their body dies, their spirit goes on living everlastingly with the Lord. The question was asked in 1 Kings 8 verse 27, Will God indeed dwell on the earth? Good question. Would God dwell on the earth? Because heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. So this is a great question. How is God going to dwell on the earth whenever the whole of the universe can't contain him? What's the answer? Well, we can look at the sanctuary. We can see the tabernacle We've studied this in a former time. You'll remember Exodus chapters 25 through 40. It's devoted to the details of that great tent in the wilderness, its construction, the furnishings, the purpose of it. The tabernacle was a large portable tent. That's what the word tabernacle means, tent. That's why it talks about Jacob and 
Isaac and them dwelling in tabernacles. They, they lived in tents. The tabernacle was a big, large, portable tent that could be taken down and it would move with the children of Israel everywhere they went. Now, the tabernacle was very elaborate. We know it was, according to the pattern that the Lord gave. God said to Moses in Exodus 25 and verse 8, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. That was the purpose of it. That I may dwell among them. And so what happened? Go back to Exodus chapter 40, and you'll see there, did God dwell among them in the tabernacle? Well, yes, he did. Exodus 40, verse 33. And he, that's Moses, reared up the court round about the tabernacle and the altar and set up the hanging of the court gate. So Moses finished the work. And then it says, Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That's the Shekinah glory, the pillar of cloud. There it is. And Moses wasn't even able to enter the tent of meeting because of that cloud that abode upon it and the glory of the Lord. It says there in verse 35 of Exodus 40, filled the tabernacle. In the time of King Solomon, the portable tabernacle was replaced by the permanent temple. But the architecture was similar. It was more elaborate in its construction, of course, being permanent. But it had the same basic blueprint as that big tent. And when the building was all completed, the Bible tells us in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10 and 11, that the priests came out of that holy place and a cloud filled the Lord's house. So just like Moses back at the time of the tabernacle couldn't enter because of the glory, it says the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, because the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. Here's the answer to the question, will God dwell upon the earth? Yes, he did dwell in the sanctuary. And we see how the Bible says in Ezekiel 37 that the Lord's dwelling place would be with them, that he would be their God, they would be his people, his sanctuary would be in the midst of them forevermore. But he's talking about this future promise. And as we think about the shelter of God, we think about the sanctuary that's where it was seen, the Lord dwelling with men in the sanctuary. We can also say that this was fulfilled as God manifested his presence in the Savior. The Savior is the fulfillment of the tabernacle and the temple structure. You see, the Bible shows us in John chapter 1 and verse 14, the fulfillment of what happened in the Old Testament because it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word dwelt is the word in Greek for tabernacled. It's as if he dwelt in a tent among us, full of grace and truth. We beheld his glory. There's the Shekinah. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In other words, the Lord Jesus Christ was the physical manifestation of the, of the presence of God amongst men. He is the great tabernacle. He is the glory. He's Emmanuel, isn't he? You know what Emmanuel means? God with us. Now, when the Lord walked this earth, his glory was veiled. People did not see any difference in him from other men. He just looked like a regular Jew as he walked around. They didn't see any beauty in him that they should desire him. His glory was veiled. But then there was that time when he met with the three disciples, Peter, James, and John, and Moses and Elijah up the mountain. Remember what happened there? He was transfigured before them. Something of his divine splendor was shining through. But you know when the Lord Jesus comes 
and the second time he will come in his full power and glory. Every eye will see him, and he's going to be coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The Shekinah. We think about God dwelling amongst men in the sanctuary, in the Savior, but then thank God in the sinner. Think about the incarnation of Christ. We think of that as the greatest act of condescension ever. One of the Puritans said, For Christ Jesus to become a man was a greater step down than if an angel were to become a worm. Oh, what matchless condescension the eternal God displays. But if the incarnation of Christ was a great act of condescension, what about the fact that God dwells within sinners like you and me? Because he does. By his blessed spirit, God presences himself among men. He actually lives within us. Remember how Jesus said this in John chapter 14? What a great scripture that is. John 14 and verse 23. Listen carefully. Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He will live within us. Didn't Jesus promise that? He said, The Holy Spirit, the one whom I will send from the Father... He's going to dwell with you and shall be in you. He makes us his dwelling place. That's why holiness is so important. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said, Know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you, which you have from God, and you're not your own, for you're bought with a price. That word, temple of the Holy Spirit, needs to be explained. There are two words for temple in the Greek, hieron and naos. Hieron refers to the temple and all its outer precincts, all the courtyard, everything connected with it. The word naos refers to the inner sanctum. It refers to the holy of holies. That inner place behind the veil where the mercy seat is. That's what the Lord says. Your body is a naos. It is the holy of holies of the Holy Spirit. What an amazing thing that is. That God makes his presence with his people here on the earth. But oh, one day, God is going to make his presence with his people more abundantly in heaven. It says there in Revelation 7, He that sitteth on the throne shall dwell. He will tabernacle among them. There's the shelter that we have in the Lord. What an amazing thing that the Lord will shelter us with his presence. Because his Shekinah glory is going to abide upon us. One man said this will be the heaven of heavens. Christians can know a degree of heaven on earth. But this is just a foretaste of the greater reality to come enjoying the very presence of God himself in glory. What is that going to be? We're told there in Revelation 21 and verse 3, not only that his servants shall serve him, but in verse 4, and they shall see his face. There are people who claim, even ministers, to have seen Jesus in this life. I want to tell you right now, they have not. That I can assure you of, they have not. The Apostle Paul made that clear when he said, now we know him no more after the flesh. Now we see through a glass, darkly, but then, face to face. What will that be? To look upon the face of Jesus. 
We can't even imagine it. There are these so-called holy pictures that people make here on the earth, paintings and Leonardo da Vinci and the Last Supper and all of that stuff. And sadly, it puts a, a picture in people's minds of what Jesus looks like. He's always got long hair and a beard. Now we know they had a beard because they pulled the they pulled the beard from his face. He could hardly pull the hairs from his face if he didn't have a beard. But the long hair part, eh? I can't see that. Not when the Apostle Paul said it's a shame for a man to have long hair. That's what Paul said. Paul was writing by inspiration. That's the Holy Spirit. Just like it's a shame for a woman to have her head shorn, her head shaved. It's a shame for a man to have long hair. Jesus didn't have long hair. I don't believe he did at all. But that's the picture you get in your mind, don't you? You try to think about the Lord and that stupid image of this long-haired, bearded man comes up before you. Because you've seen it in all the holy pictures. It's hard to get away from that. But what will it be to actually see him face to face? What a day that will be. That's what the hymn writer said. When my Jesus I shall see. When I look upon his face. The one who saved me by his grace. When he takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land. What a day. Glorious day. That will be. You know what it will be to look at the face of Jesus? It will be to look at the Shekinah glory. See, that's what Jesus meant when he said in John 17, 24. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am. What for? That they may behold my glory which thou hast given me. The Shekinah. That's something we only see right now by faith. We see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, but not literally. But when we get to heaven, we will see him. And what will that be? The one that went to Calvary who shed his precious blood for us. The one who suffered the contradiction of sinners against himself. We're going to see, as Second Thessalonians 2.14 puts it, the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ and will enjoy his shelter for all eternity. None will be able to touch the Father's child. We're never going to be without his protection. May the Lord help us to contemplate heaven as it is revealed to us in the word. May we rejoice in the fact that we're going to be serving him eternally. Let's serve him here. We're sheltered in a sense here, but oh, to be sheltered completely and totally and finally in glory. This is the prospect for every child of God.